Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. In the Dead by James Joyce and Kate in a discussion about singers announces that for her there was only one tenor, to please me, I mean. But I suppose none of you ever heard of him. His name, she said, was Parkinson. I heard him when he was in his prime, and I think he had then the purest tenor voice that was ever put into a man's throat. But the others in the company have never heard of him. Scholars have suggested that this is Joyce's way of showing that Aunt Kate's memory is fading. One writing, for example, that it seems unlikely that such a group of aficionados would have known nothing of so remarkable a tenor voice as that evoked by Anne Kate. But I think I know what Anne Kate might have meant. In 1977, in the Palau de la Musica, the main concert hall in Barcelona, there was a Beethoven marathon, a whole day dedicated to Beethoven's music. Lasting eight hours, it included a piano concerto, chamber music, and ended with the Ninth Symphony. But what stood out for me was when, in the late afternoon, a soprano came onto the stage and sang a single song called The Elfin Fairies, one of Beethoven's Irish songs. It could not have lasted more than three minutes. I thought the singer had the most delicate, expressive and exquisite voice. Even now, 45 years later, I can remember how she balanced the lilting tone in the arrangement against the soaring notes in the melody. She was supremely confident. Her name was Carmen Bustamante, and she must have been in her thirties then. But when I asked about her, no one seemed to recognise her name. I wondered why she was not as famous as other singers in Barcelona then, such as Montserrat Cavalier and Victoria de los Angeles. And then I met someone who explained. Carmen Bustamante was a famous singing teacher. While she did sometimes perform, she did not tour much and had made no recordings. Like Veronica Dunn in Ireland, the quality of her voice was known only to a few. But she inspired several generations of students. She became my Parkinson. She was a soprano who had pleased me. But I had only heard her once, just one song. Recently, I went back to that concert hall in Barcelona to give a talk about music in the city in the 1970s. And I thought I should check in the age of the internet, to see if there was any more information about Carmen Bustamante. And I found to my delight that she had made a number of CDs and I could now, after all the years, listen to her voice again. Like other Catalan singers, she had made a CD of Catalan folk songs that in complex arrangements had almost become art songs as performed by, say, Victoria de los Angeles or José Carreras. In these songs, Carmen Bustamante's voice was as confident and exquisite as I remembered. But like the other two singers, she'd also worked with the songs of a number of Catalan composers who had thrived at the beginning of the 20th century, whose songs had become part of the Catalan repertoire, but were hardly known outside Catalonia. Composers like Frédéric Mompou, Xavier Monsalvace and Edouard Toldra. There was one song by Toldra a setting of a poem by the Catalan poet Giuseppe Carne, whose work had been translated by the Irish poet Pierce Hutchinson, that I started to listen to over and over. After all the years, 
Here was the voice again, Carmen Bustamante, delicate, intimate, haunting, the control and timing perfect. It is nonetheless hard to explain why this was the voice for me. Perhaps something in the mixture of modesty and a striving for perfection, simplicity combined with technical perfection, perhaps an understated sense of yearning, perhaps because she was more at home with delicate art songs than large operatic parts. I don't know. Before the lecture in Barcelona, I sent the people there the text, and since it contained so many dates and facts, they decided to check in case I'd got something wrong. Who now remembered a Beethoven marathon in Barcelona in 1977? Who remembered Montserrat Cavalier singing Wagner in 1978? And who remembered Carmen Bustamante? In the office that day, when the fact-checker asked his colleagues if anyone knew her name, they all shook their heads except one. He said that Carmen Bustamante was a neighbour of a friend of his. When they found a number for her and phoned her, she said she was indeed the singer. And yes, she had sung that Beethoven song in the Palau de la Musica in that concert in 1977. A week later, as I spoke in the concert hall about what it meant to hear her then and what it had meant for all the years to carry the memory of her voice, knowing that this memory was not generally shared, I knew that Carmen Bustamante, a sprightly 84-year-old, was in the front row. So that the audience would know what her voice at its height had been like, we played in her presence a recording of that Toldra song, it is called Canso Incerta. The 11th of August, 1832, fell on a Saturday. In Sligo, it was both fair day and market day, and the streets bustled with farmers and hawkers. The deadly strain of cholera that had been moving across the country since April had failed to reach the town, and its residents had begun to believe they'd been spared. The day began bright and fresh, but in mid-morning the sky grew dark. Thunderclaps and lightning bolts shook the heavens and when the storm had passed a strange atmosphere remained, close and warm. By nightfall cholera had claimed its first victims. The townsfolk closed their doors and within days the only traffic on the streets were the doctor's carriages and carts laden with corpses. One Sligo resident witnessed the calamity from the window of her home on Correction Street, now Old Market Street. Charlotte Matilda Blake Thornley was 14. She smelled the barrels of tar that were burned to repel the pestilence. She saw bodies lying on the street below, wrapped in sheets slaked with pitch. She heard the knock of the coffin maker, the dying screams of her neighbours. By the end of August, when her family fled, the town was almost deserted. 
It's said that the epidemic claimed 1,500 lives in just a few weeks. Charlotte survived the outbreak and in her early 20s married an older man, a civil servant called Abraham Stoker. They moved to Dublin and Charlotte bore eight children. The third child was born in 1847, the worst year of the famine, and named after his father. The young Bram Stoker was a weak and sickly boy, in his own words, often at the point of death. He spent his early years confined to bed, tended to by his mother. These days, a sick child might expect a duvet day in front of the television and a dose of some sugary analgesic suspension every four hours. Bram Stoker's mother entertained him with stories, with the ghost stories and folk tales and fairy tales of her West of Ireland childhood and with ghoulish recollections of the Sligo cholera epidemic. In her memoir, Charlotte gives a vivid, often lurid account of the horrors she saw that month. She gives us men with blanched faces whispering the word cholera as the first case is confirmed. She gives us an overcrowded hospital staffed by women of the worst description, half drunk and perpetrating such scenes as would make the flesh creep. She gives us the living, stupefied with opium, tossed into a vast pit to lie among the dead. His mother's influence is evident in Stoker's 1897 book Dracula, in which the undead emerge from coffins and Harker, the protagonist, is pursued by ghastly women. Later in the book, Harker and his friends study folklore in order to better understand Count Dracula. It's also worth noting that the story is told in epistolary form through diary entries and newspaper reports. But it's in a lesser known work by Stoker, a story called The Invisible Giant, that Charlotte feels most present. The giant of the title is a metaphor for a plague. Stoker describes a vast shadowy form shrouded in a great misty robe, looming in the sky and little birds falling down dead. Charlotte recalled a heavy sulphurous looking cloud hanging low over the house and dead birds strewn about the shores of Loch Gill. The source of Stoker's plague is a drinking fountain. The probable cause of the Sligo cholera epidemic was contaminated water in the town's wells. Mostly though, it's Charlotte's voice that echoes through her son's pages. Her gift for creating atmosphere with small details. The unearthly gleam of burning tar on a dark night. The dreadful ring of the cholera bell. Her delightfully gothic brand of horror. When her children were grown, Charlotte began to pursue her own interests. She took up causes of the day, campaigning on behalf of the deaf and mute and for the education of servant girls. She lived on the continent for a time as her husband suffered from ill health and returned to Dublin after he died in Naples. Charlotte Matilda Blake Thornley Stoker, social reformer, writer and survivor of the Sligo cholera epidemic, died in 1901 at the grand old age of 83. There's some confusion about her final resting place, with both Mount Jerome in Dublin and St John's Cathedral, Sligo, claiming that her remains lie in their grounds. A suitable fate, perhaps.
for the corpse of the woman who inspired Bram Stoker to write Dracula. As Halloween approaches, many of us will be on the lookout for a scary movie to watch. My own personal favourite is probably The Innocents with Deborah Carr, a 1961 black-and-white adaptation of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. When I was very young, I loved the old Frankenstein, Dracula and Wolfman films starring Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr. Still great to watch now if not exactly subtle. Often the less you see, the more that's left to your imagination, the scarier the movie will be. One old scary film you may not have come across, but which was a big hit in its day, and also has strong Irish connections, is called The Uninvited. It was directed by Lewis Allen in 1944 for Paramount Pictures, in good old black and white, and starred Ray Milland, Ruth Hussey, and Donald Crisp, with an uncredited appearance by the late Angela Lansbury's mother, Belfast-born actress Moyna McGill. Set in a haunted house on the Cornish coast, the film has a fine score by Victor Young, who also scored The Quiet Man and the western Shane. And Charles Lang Jr.'s cinematography was nominated for an Academy Award. The film was adapted from a 1941 novel called Uneasy Freehold, published in the US as The Uninvited, and the novel was written by Dundalk-born Dorothy McCardle. McCardle was born in 1889 in Dundalk into the well-known McCardle's brewing family. Her mother was an English Anglican who converted to Catholicism on marriage and was politically unionist, while her father was a home ruler. Brought up a Catholic, Dorothy was initially educated at home by a governess and then attended Alexandra College in Dublin, which had a Church of Ireland ethos and a progressive attitude towards girls' education. The first women to receive university degrees in Ireland were former pupils of Alex. Interestingly, Porig Pierce taught Irish there for a time. After obtaining her degree at UCD, Dorothy taught in Stratford, and lived in England until 1917, when she returned to Alex to teach. But by then she was not only a teacher and an aspiring writer, she was also politically driven, joining the Gaelic League and Comanomon. She was very much on the anti-treaty side in the Civil War, and served time in both Mountjoy and Kilmainham jails. She used this period of incarceration to write a number of mainly supernatural stories which were published in 1924 in a book called Earthbound. By then, she had been dismissed from her teaching post. She continued to write for the stage. Several of her plays were produced by the Abbey Theatre and she worked as a journalist for the League of Nations. In 1937, her history book The Irish Republic was published, 
with a foreword by her close friend Eamon de Valera, to whom she would later will all royalties from the book. However, while a strong supporter of de Valera initially, and a lifelong friend, McArdle was very critical of what she saw as the inferior position of women written into the Constitution of Ireland, which ironically came into force in the same year as her book. During the Second World War, Dorothy lived in Britain, working with continental refugees, and after the war, she wrote about the mistreatment and the resistance of children in Nazi-occupied Europe in her book Children of Europe, published in 1949. She returned to Ireland and became president of the Irish Association of Civil Liberties until a year before her death of colon cancer in December 1958. She is buried in St Fintan's Cemetery, Sutton, in North Dublin. Also buried in St Fintan's are the founders of Dublin's Gate Theatre, Hilton Edwards and Michal MacLeamore, who both produced and acted in Dorothy's last play, Dark Waters, in 1932, the script of which, unfortunately, has never been found. But Dorothy's spirit may have crossed the Gate Theatre again somehow in 1996, when Bernard Farrell's play Stella by Starlight premiered. The title is from that old jazz standard sung by Ella Fitzgerald and many others, and which was written by American composer Victor Young, using the theme from his score for a certain 1944 movie called, yes, you've guessed it, The Uninvited. Well, now I know what film I'm going to be watching this Halloween night. The internet was down and I was contemplating the lake in Anna McCarrick in Monaghan. I was listening to Puccini without words. Words distract me when I'm writing, but the music seeps into my subconscious and transports me to other places and times. Several swans glided along the far bank and I wondered how much inspiration Giacomo Puccini had got from his lake, Torre del Lago in Tuscany. A few years ago I visited his villa there. I fell into conversation with an elegant lady sitting in the shade of the flower-filled gardens. She told me she was Simonetta, Puccini's granddaughter, his only known living descendant. I didn't know then that she had fought a 15-year-long court battle to be recognised as such, a battle which saw her inheriting one-third of the composer's considerable estates. With no children by his wife, Giacomo's son, Tonio, had fathered her outside his marriage. She thanked me for visiting the villa. Thanked me. I was on a pilgrimage. I had reached Mecca. I had fallen in love with her grandfather's music when I saw Madame Butterfly for the first time, and it had made me cry. In search of rustic seclusion, Puccini bought the property at Torre. He gutted it and built the villa when the royalties from La Boheme began to roll in. 
He enjoyed his years there, with his fleet of boats, his fast cars, card games and wild parties. It was here that he wrote most of his operas too. And here I was now, about to enter his home and walk through the rooms where he had sat, played, composed, laughed and loved. For me, no one writes love more beautifully than Puccini. And he had lots of experience. His wife Elvira was married when he met her. Neither state nor church laws sanctioned divorce, so when they had their son Tonio, she had to move away to avoid the scandals and the damages were due to his career. They could only legalise the union several years later, when her husband was shot dead by his married lover's husband, a plot almost as incredible as some of his operatic ones. Elvira was a jealous wife, not in the normal wifely way, but in an insanely obsessive way. Mind you, she had reason to be a bit concerned, as he had a tendency to fall in love with his leading ladies, and his correspondence documents at least seven lovers amongst them. Using the excuse of artistic needs didn't do much to reassure Elvira. She accused him of having an affair with a housemaid, spread dastardly rumours around the town, slandered her to her family and even threatened to drown her in the lake. Devastated and denying such claims, the 23-year-old maid ingested poison and died three painful days later. The post-mortem, it was reported, showed that she had been a virgin. Elvira was tried and sentenced to five months and five days in prison. Only after much haggling did Puccini manage to buy her way out of that by offering substantial compensation to the girl's parents. This too could have been a plot from one of his operas. The villa is much as it was when he and Elvira lived there, and there's something hauntingly surreal about standing in the large room, the faint strains of La Boheme playing softly in the background. It's easy to imagine Giacomo sitting there at the upright foster piano. It had been fitted with a special damper because of his habit of working through the night. He might even have chewed on one of the pens on the nearby desk where his writing paraphernalia is spread out. There are signed photos of his contemporaries all around, the great Caruso, Gustav Mahler and Franz Lehar amongst them. There's also one of Maria Gerizza, the Czech soprano, whom he claimed was his best Tosca ever. She was also one of his lovers. The gun room was not something I had expected to find at Puccini's villa. His guns gleamed in a glass case. Boots of all shapes and sizes were arranged neatly in a row, and stuffed water birds kept their beady eyes on me, reminding me that I was an interloper. I hadn't expected a little chapel between the gun room and study either. His son had this built after his father died suddenly, following surgery in 1924. Now his remains rest in the villa where he wrote love like no one else, and desire, and loss, and yearning. He was later joined by his wife Elvira, daughter-in-law Rita, his son Tonio, and in 2017 by Simonetta herself. She may have been the last in the line, but as I sit listening to Puccini without words, I know his legacy will go on and on, because nobody wrote love more beautifully than the maestro, and I doubt if anyone ever will again.
Along with mashed potato and butter, cabbage is the other important ingredient in Colcannon, a dish traditionally served in Ireland at Halloween. But it seems that in the past, cabbage had uses other than culinary at this time of year. The first time I heard of cabbage being used as part of Halloween celebrations was in the mid-60s when our primary school teacher entertained us with stories of terrible happenings in the big bad world, otherwise known as Wexford Town. One afternoon, as we knitted and sewed in a most industrious fashion, Sister perched on one of the sixth class desks and told us of a lawless Halloween event that had taken place years before when she was a young teacher in the Fife. At the time, the townies didn't even give Halloween its proper title, preferring to call the ancient feast of all souls Cabbage Stump Night. Gangs of young people, some of them girls, went round at nightfall banging on their neighbours' doors with the stalks of cabbages and causing untold damage to the nerves of honest citizens and the paintwork on their front doors. I couldn't imagine anyone venturing out on Halloween night. Everyone knew that the souls of the dead would be so thick on the ground that you would hear them crunch if you so much as stepped outside the door. So I was relieved when Sister said that in recent times the guards had put a stop to this ugly practice. I haven't heard Cabbage Stump Night mentioned since then and I began to wonder if it was a figment of the good sister's imagination caused perhaps by the culture shock of leaving the gentle hills of her native Kerry to walk among the untamed seafaring Wexfordians. So I looked up Cabbage Stump Night and found quite a few references in the Irish Folklore Archive. Set up in 1937 to gather information on traditions in Ireland, the decision to involve national school children was an inspired one and over the next couple of years, the senior children in primary schools filled 140,000 copybooks with local history, ancient cures, proverbs and customs. Images of these copybooks can now be viewed online and the click of a button brought me to the copies of the pupils from the school where our nun had worked. In impeccable cursive handwriting, three of the girls told how, while the mothers were busy making the coal cannon, the children saved the cabbage stalks. This would be their ammunition to terrorise the neighbours as soon as darkness fell. Madge Brown of Town noted that the fun began after the tea when boys and girls gathered together in back places. They planned their route and set off striking doors with cabbage stumps, waking the babies and damaging doors. The victims did not take this lying down and householders often stood behind the front door wielding a stick to hit their tormentors. Peggy Saunders of Burns Lane reported that women waited at upstairs windows with buckets of water to throw on the perpetrators. But the fun was not confined to Halloween night. Nan O'Brien of King Street recorded that on the night before Halloween, the young people staked out their route and went round hitting doors to see who would not tolerate their pranks. And these houses were their very first targets on Cabbage Stump Night when the guards had to be called to chase off the delinquents. My online research yielded another interesting fact. In Framingham, Massachusetts, the eve of Halloween is known as Cabbage Night. Local historians blame this flinging about of cabbages on the Dutch settlers who were big fans of the leafy greens and on Scottish immigrant girls who pulled cabbages from their neighbours' vegetable patches and examined the leaves to divine the qualities of their future husbands. 
Their fortune-telling completed, they flung the cabbages against the doors and ran away. The historians may be blaming the wrong nation, however, as back in the folklore archive, Peggy Mulligan from Cranford National School Gorey recorded that using cabbage to tell the future was an Irish custom. Sometimes a boy and girl go out in a field, she wrote, where they each pull a head of cabbage. And if there's clay on the roots, they will soon be married. But time moved on, fashions changed and we abandoned the old mischief-making pursuits of Samhain to embrace Hollywood's glitzy, sugar-filled reimagining of our ancient festival. Well, did you ever make a cannon made with lovely pickle cream? With the greens and scallions mingle like a picture in a dream. Did you ever make a hole on top to hold the melton flake of the creamy flavoured butter that our mothers used to make? Oh, you did, so you did, so did he and so did I. And the more I think about it, sure the nearer I'm to cry. Almost 700 years ago, a young woman was dragged through the streets of Kilkenny, publicly flogged, tied to a stake and burned to death. It was November 1324 and it was purportedly the first ever burning of a witch in Ireland. But there was a problem. The wrong woman had been burned to death. The woman the authorities wished to burn at the stake was Alice Kittler, better known as Kilkenny's Witch. I was telling the story of Alice Kittler to a group of American tourists in Kittler's Inn in Kilkenny, once the home of the infamous Alice. I told them how Alice was by no means our typical idea of a witch, but rather an ambitious woman who had no problem attracting men. However, she specialised in elderly, wealthy widowers. In 1324, Alice was on husband number four, Sir John Le Poire. Her previous three husbands, all of them rich and old, having died in mysterious circumstances, leaving nothing, not a red cent, to their children. Alice Kittler inherited everything, making her a very wealthy and influential member of Kilkenny society. In 1324, Alice's fourth husband, John Le Poire, was visited in Kittler's Inn by the children from his first marriage. They were shocked when they saw him. Records tell us that he was reduced to such a state by powders, pills and potions that he was totally emaciated, deprived of his nails and his hair had fallen out. Classic symptoms we now know of arsenic poisoning. Those children, along with the children of Alice's previous three husbands, approached the Bishop of Ossory, Richard de la Dread, alleging that by witchcraft Alice had poisoned their fathers and induced them to leave her all their money. The upshot of it all was that Alice was tried for witchcraft. One of the charges was as follows. In order to inflict death or disease on the body, 
She made powders and ointments containing certain horrible worms, curious herbs and dead men's nails which she cooked with various incantations over an oak fire in a vessel made from the skull of a decapitated thief. Alice was found guilty and sentenced to be burned at the stake. However, thanks to her wealth and friends in high places, the Lord Chancellor of Ireland, Roger Outlaw, was her brother-in-law, she slipped quietly out of Ireland and was never heard of again. Frustrated that Alice had slipped the net, Bishop de la Dread needed a scapegoat. Her name was Petronella of Meath, Alice Kittler's lady-in-waiting. It was this 24-year-old woman who was, horrifically, publicly flogged until she confessed to witchcraft. And it was this innocent young woman they burned at the stake in 1324, the first ever burning of a so-called witch in Ireland. When I'd finished my story about Alice Kittler, a gentleman approached me and said, Jerry, I am here with my wife, who is a direct descendant of Alice Kittler. I was intrigued. Over a drink, I chatted with Idonna Griffith from Austin, Texas, who told me that according to her meticulous research, Alice Kittler was her 23rd great-grandmother. I was fascinated. Idonna informed me that Alice Kittler had one son from her first marriage, William Outlaw. She also had a daughter, Alicia, from her fourth marriage to husband number four, John Lepoire. According to Idonna's research, Alicia married and travelled to England, where she gave birth to a daughter, Isabel. Adana had traced her own lineage back to Alicia and Isabel. Isabel and her people settled in England for almost 300 years before emigrating to America, arriving in Virginia around 1630, which is where Idana and her family came in. Idana then astounded me by telling me that she, like her infamous ancestor Alice Kittler, has had four husbands. I was gobsmacked and sheepishly asked Idana what became of her previous three husbands. She told me that one had passed away, but that the other two were alive and well. Unlucky in love, I asked. Too young and immature, Idana replied. I then jokingly asked about the health of her fourth husband, Harry. Hale and hearty, Harry piped up. Is Idonna Griffith from Austin, Texas, really a direct descendant of Alice Kittler Kilkenny's witch? I don't know for sure, but this I do know. Idonna, with her charm and intelligence, most certainly cast a spell on me. On this morning's programme, we heard Rediscovering Carmen Bustamante by Colm Jabeen. Duvet Days with the Stokers was by Louise Kennedy. Dorothy McCardle and The Uninvited by Carla Neal. No One Writes Love Like Puccini by Muriel Bolger. Cabbage Stump Night in Wexford was by A.M. Cousins. 
and Alice and Idona, Two of a Kind by Jerry Morin. The music this morning was Canso Inserta by Edward Toldra, sung by Carmen Bustamante. Dracula by Philip Glass was played by the Kronos Quartet. Stella by Starlight by Victor Young, played by Chick Corea. Puccini's O Mio Babino Caro by the Andre Costellanets Orchestra. And Colcannon by the Black Family. Column to Bean's opera The Master, with music by Alberto Caruso, is currently playing at Wexford Opera House as part of Wexford Festival Opera. And Lyric FM and RTE.ie forward slash culture are joining forces with Wexford Festival Opera to broadcast and stream more work from the festival in the coming week. See RTE.ie forward slash culture. Novels by Dorothy McArdle, including The Uninvited, have been republished by Tramp Press. And her play, Witch's Brew, is included in the recent anthology, Plays by Women in Ireland, Feminist Theatres of Freedom and Resistance, edited by Lisa Fitzpatrick and Shona Hill. And Prison Notebooks, a play based on McArdle's Civil War jail journals, is at Smock Alley next month. See smockalley.com. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. You can listen back at rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.